to Can He Do That?, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. This week, we are bringing you a special episode about an incredible story that The Washington Post's national security staff has been working on for quite some time. It's a very deep look inside the Obama administration's response to Russian interference in the 2016 election. The details, the timeline are fascinating, and the story tells us so much about where the U.S. stands with Russia and what President Trump faces today. The story raises can he do that questions for both the Obama and Trump administrations. Can a president fail to sufficiently punish a country that interferes in our democratic elections? And can an incoming president continue to deny such interference even occurred? And then what happens when the two leaders transition power? Reporters Greg Miller, Ellen Nakashima, and Adam Entus wrote this complex and deeply reported story. And fortunately, Greg is here to break it down for us. Greg, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Sure. So last August, an envelope arrives at the hands of Barack Obama and three senior aides, and it was sent by courier direct from the CIA. What was in that envelope? So inside this envelope is a blockbuster piece of intelligence that the CIA has picked up right toward the end of July or early August. It's from sourcing deep inside the Russian government. It speaks directly to Putin's direct involvement in the Russian interference campaign that was then unfolding, right, and still sort of in its early stages in the election last year. But it goes even further than that. Not only is Putin running this operation, but he is specifying its objectives. And those are to help Trump and to damage, if not defeat, Hillary Clinton. Right. So give us an idea of how sensitive this intelligence was. You know, it went straight to the president. It only went to three other aides. How sensitive was this? How it's delivered tells us a lot about how sensitive it is. Because ordinary intelligence can be sent from the CIA to the White House electronically. I mean, there are lots of ways to communicate this stuff. But the most sensitive material still gets carried by hand. And in fact, this one is not only brought by hand, but as you point out, there are unusual handling restrictions on it. Only four people. They call it eyes only. That means only four people are allowed to see the contents of this envelope. When they're done reading it, the agency handlers take it back and carry it back to the CIA. They don't even keep a copy at the White House. You mentioned that the information inside this envelope indicated that Putin himself ordered an operation to defeat or damage Hillary Clinton and to help elect President Trump. What do we know at this point about why Putin would order that? Well, Putin has a number of motivations, Drew. So at a, at a very basic level, he's eager to discredit democratic institutions in the West, particularly the United States. But he also has a personal animus toward Hillary Clinton, whom he blames for uprisings in Russia several years ago when he returned as president of Russia. There were protests, um, lots of protests. And he still believes that a lot of that activity was incited not just by the United States, but by Hillary Clinton. And he broadly suspects that the U.S. does this all the time to him and to other adversaries around the world. In his worldview, the United States is always meddling and turnabout is fair play. And this is an effort to give the United States its own medicine. So at this point, it's now August 2016 in this timeline, and Trump secured the GOP nomination, as has Hillary Clinton secured the Democratic nomination. And Russian hackers had already made some moves to disrupt the US electoral system. 
What had hackers done by this point? By this point, quite a bit. So for over a year, Russian hackers had been rooting around in the computer networks of Democratic operatives, the Democratic National Committee, and also some Republican committees and also think tanks in Washington. So there's lots of exploring, lots of probing. But they're really focused on extracting information from these Democratic Party-related systems. By August, they've already given us a pretty clear sense of what they're going to do with this. So it's not unusual for a foreign government to do this sort of collection, probing, let's see what we can learn from these emails, from the emails inside the DNC, but then to take that information and turn it into a weapon, right? To take it, bring it to an organization like WikiLeaks, dump it out in the open to have an impact in the United States. So this isn't just Russia trying to learn in traditional, in a tr- sort of traditional espionage way. This is Russia trying to take this information and turn it into a political weapon. Yeah, so they provided 20,000 emails from the DNC to WikiLeaks. By late July, the the first big dump has already happened. 20,000 emails released by WikiLeaks. The chairwoman of the DNC is forced to resign. It creates a lot of um, turmoil in the Democratic Party, right right in the middle of the Democratic uh, Party's convention. Other than that hacking, what else did Russia do to interfere in the 2016 election? What are the things that they did to, to try and impact the outcome? Well, there was a lot of messaging, as you just said. There were, and, and we're still only beginning, I think, to really truly take account of how extensive that was. The hacking and the releases were the most recognizable thing. But there was lots of suspicious kind of patterns of propaganda coming from seemingly out of nowhere, often making if not demonstrably false, then awfully suspicious or flimsy claims, uh, particularly about Clinton, a lot of stuff on her health. And it's just the rapidity with which that is circulating and surfing social media is astonishing. And I think a lot of experts believe that that doesn't happen without Russia really playing a major role in making that happen. But then there are also more ominous things that are happening. There is evidence, the FBI is picking up on evidence, that Russia is actually probing state election systems, voter registration rolls, voting databases, voting systems, right? So the Obama administration in power at this time is looking at all of this and thinking, wow, as bad as this big WikiLeaks dump was, if they go after the election systems on election day and they're serious about this, we could be facing a real crisis. So that became a priority then for the Obama administration to prevent that kind of damage? Yes. I mean, a lot of the officials we talked to in the story identify that as their first and highest priority throughout, protecting the sanctity of that election. We quote Dennis McDonough, Obama's chief of staff, saying this was their first order principle, safeguarding the election. So now the Obama administration, based on the CIA intelligence, knows that Putin is directly interfering in the U.S. election. What are the first steps that the Obama administration takes to do something about this? There's a couple things. So they immediately start holding meetings in the Situation Room at the White House, NSC meetings that are very close hold. Initially, it's just four cabinet members allowed in the room to hear, you know, what Brennan has brought to the White House and what they are beginning to think is happening. Um, But they're starting to think about, well, what can we do about this? If this is true and if it turns out that Russia is engaged in a more systematic campaign than we might have previously thought, what are we supposed to do about it? Beneath that level in the White House, you have 
uh, interagency staff. So you have senior NSC staff, people at the Pentagon, people who work at the State Department and CIA and other agencies who are responsible for coming up, generating ideas, lists of ideas. What can we do to respond, to retaliate, to deter Russia? And this plays out over a long, long period of time. Weeks and weeks stretch into months and months and becomes a huge source of frustration. Ultimately, the only real significant debate that matters before the election is whether the Obama administration can bring itself to say anything, can go public with what it knows in any way. And that takes forever, too. It takes them until October, just a month before the election, before they issue a statement. And even then, it's coming from the intelligence community, not from Obama. Yeah, so let's talk about that October 7th moment for a second. The intelligence community, this is the first time the Obama administration publicly speaks about this. First, tell me what they said publicly. And then second, talk a little bit about what else was going on that day that might have interfered with how that news met the the rest of the world. Right. So the administration is under serious pressure at this point. The Clinton campaign people are pulling their hair out. Why can the White House not bring itself to say anything? Go public. Talk about what Putin is trying to do here. Democrats on the Hill are issuing their own statements. They're upset. They can't stand it that this is, that this is sort of dragging out. And there's even people inside the administration who are growing impatient. So the White House finally gets around to doing this. It gets a high-confidence assessment from several intelligence services that it feels it can go public with. It has to blur a lot of the details, but it feels it can issue this statement on October 7th, which basically says Russia is behind this campaign to destabilize the election, and it is being run from the highest levels of the Russian government. It doesn't name Putin, but the implication is clear. They put that out on October 7th, hoping that this is going to get a lot of attention, that this is going to amount to a public condemnation uh, for Putin and Russia that will be consequential. But within half an hour, it's overtaken by the ongoing insanity of the campaign. So half an hour later, the Washington Post publishes a big story on the Access Hollywood tapes where Trump is saying very denigrating stuff about women. Uh, Half an hour after that, the first big WikiLeaks dump of emails stolen from the Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta happened. So that day ends up being a media free-for-all. And the story that the White House expected to dominate coverage ends up sort of second tier. So the Obama administration took all of that time until October 7th to to release this information publicly. But why not take greater action? Why not take punitive measures early on? Why didn't they just act on this major assault on American democracy that they knew was happening? I think there's a couple reasons there. So one of them is concern that if they do something, that they will end up in an escalating crisis with Moscow. That if the U.S. retaliates against Russia, Russia will just up the ante and come back with more. And that leading up to the election, who knows how where that cycle would end, right? So there's real fear, worry in the Obama White House. How do we control that? How, how, do, we, how do we not make things worse? I mean, that ends up being kind of Obama's guiding principle on a lot of issues. How do I not make things worse? And in this case, they were really worried things could get worse. But there's another political layer here for this White House. They're deeply worried that if they act, they will be accused of political interference themselves, that by confronting Russia, by taking any steps, they will be inserting themselves into the campaign in a way that will lead them, leave them vulnerable to criticism 
that they are interfering politically, acting politically, acting to benefit Hillary Clinton, acting to hurt Donald Trump, who's already on the campaign trail by early August talking about how this election is going to be rigged, people. So they're so worried about that 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 also is a constraint on them. And President Trump, I think up to this point in time, has not you know, outwardly said that he believes that the Russians interfered in the 2016 election. Is that correct? That's right. I mean, even within recent weeks, he continues to dismiss this, to say, well, it could have been China, it could have been other, anybody else, maybe it's Russia, but absolutely sticking his finger in the eye of the intelligence community over and over and over on this. Okay, so then let's move back to the timeline a little bit here. Leaders were worried in the lead up to the election about our voting systems. And Jay Johnson, who was the former Homeland Security Secretary, he tries to reach out to Congress. How was the news of this received in Congress? Well, so it's interesting to go back through this period and to see how uh, one of the things we try to explore in the story is how a national security matter, a national security crisis, I think, unfolds and ends up being whipped around by political forces. It's inescapable in Washington that it's going to happen this way in this sort of hyperpartisan environment. So the Obama administration thinks, wow, we've got this, this amazing intelligence that says Putin's behind this, this is Putin's objective. All we got to do is go up to the Hill and we're going to get Republicans and Democrats are going to want to help us out here. They're going to, they're going to not play, want to play politics here. They're going to want to do the right thing. They go up there and get shut down, right? They send Jay Johnson, Lisa Monaco, and FBI director at the time, Jim Comey, up try to make this case to 12 senior members of Congress. Hey, we really need you to come together in a bipartisan way, issue a statement saying this is wrong what Russia is doing to us, that America needs to come together right now, and we need to try to work together to secure our voting systems before it's too late. Democrats are all saying, oh, okay, that's great. Yes, we absolutely want to do that. Republicans are dragging their feet right away. Um, they argue, some of them, that doing this just sort of actually works to Russia's advantage. It just makes what Russia's trying to do here, the destabilization objective, worse, because it will make people lack confidence in our system. If they think our system is vulnerable to this kind of interference, then they will believe our system is being interfered with. But they're also suspicious of the underlying intelligence. And they basically, they refuse. They refuse to sign on to anything like the White House wanted. So no one, basically, we reach election day, and other than the Obama administration speaking publicly on October 7th, no major steps have been taken to retaliate against Russia. No steps at all. No, no punitive measures. You do have a couple cases of warnings, right? So you have Putin confronting, or uh, Obama, I should say, confronting Putin in China at an international meeting, pulling him aside, through interpreters saying, we know what you're up to, it needs to stop. You have a couple other messages along those lines delivered, but nothing, no response in terms of a counter cyber attack, economic sanctions, the kind of measures we've come to expect when the United States is really upset with something that's happening overseas. Based on your reporting, were those threats from the United States effective in stopping Russia? Well, it depends. So the Obama administration believes, members of the administration believe to this day, that those warnings may account for the fact that there was no real major disruption on Election Day. For all of those initial worries about all those signs that Russia was probing different voting systems, nothing was blown up, right? No computer systems went down. 
There were no crashes of voter rolls or things like that. And so they point to that as evidence that what they did worked, that they helped protect the election, and that was their chief objective. But it's hard to know, right? It's hard to know whether that ever was really Russia's plan or whether it got what it wanted just by the interference that it had already managed to pull off. Yeah. So in terms of getting what it wanted, here comes Election Day. Donald Trump wins. What was the reaction like inside the White House, specifically in terms of the decisions they had made up to that point in terms of retaliating against Russia? I think it's shell shock inside the White House and probably a lot of other places in Washington, frankly. They see a new uh, a transition instead of somebody who had been actually a member of Obama's cabinet, his secretary of state, now going to be handing off to somebody who's been praising Putin, calling on Russia to hack Hillary's emails. I mean, they, they, it's just inconceivable to them. I didn't, they just did not see that coming. And that has a, a couple effects. They're stopped in their tracks to such an extent that it takes a while to regroup and to start to reconsider, well, we're still in office. We still have a month and a half to go. We still have to deal with what just happened. So after the election, John Kerry, who's secretary of state at the time, he tries to suggest forming this bipartisan commission to deal with Russia. How was that suggestion received by Obama? Yeah, so this is an interesting moment in this timeline because coming out of the election, you know, the Obama administration basically made a decision. We're not going to take any action before the election. The risks are too high. So Kerry does two things. He says, OK, fine. Right before the election, he goes to the White House and says, Fine, but let's announce something right after the election. Right after all the votes are securely counted, let's send a signal that we mean business on this stuff and we're not going to stand for what just happened. That proposal goes nowhere. After the election, he comes back with a fallback idea. Okay, you don't want to do those punitive measures we had on the drawing board. Let's just create a commission, at least, that is put in charge, a bipartisan commission modeled on the 9-11 investigation that tries to get to the bottom of this, that will look into this for posterity, make recommendations, what needs to happen to safeguard our systems going forward. And it's really interesting how this plays out. So initially, there's an encouraging sign from the White House. The State Department gets a call saying that Dennis McDonough, the chief of staff, is going to introduce this idea at the next principals meeting, which is the gathering of cabinet-level people. And the staff at the State Department is thinking, oh, wow, that they must like this. This is actually going to go forward. Except they show up to the meeting, and the first thing that Dennis McDonough does is start arguing. He introduces it and then proceeds to argue against it. And then Obama chimes in and says, yeah, I don't like it either. And the idea goes down immediately, and that's the last anybody hears of it. Do we know why Dennis McDonough argued against it? Yeah, because we spoke with him, uh, and he said that one of the reasons was that he thought it, it was out of sequence to do it that way, that he thought that it was too important to let U.S. intelligence agencies embark on their own investigation, piece together all the information they had, and put together a comprehensive report. And then for Congress to step in through its various committees and try to get to the bottom of this and look at any legislative remedies. Uh, And then only then would it make sense to do a commission. Um, I mean, there are a lot of people who disagree with that, but that is what uh, McDonough's position was. Okay, so he decided no commission. What did the Obama administration do towards the end of December in terms of punitive measures against Russia? So they did uh, several things. Late December, after another round of frustrating meetings in the White House, they announced a package of punitive measures against Russia that include 
the expulsion of 35 Russian officials in the United States, most of whom are suspected of being Russian spies, the seizure of two Russian compounds in the U.S. Most Americans, including myself, didn't even really know that these things were out there, but Russia had these two big properties that were sort of retreats for their people, one in Maryland, one in New York. So those are closed and the Russians are kicked out of them. Then there are sanctions, economic sanctions targeting Russia's intelligence services, the senior officials at those services, and a couple companies that are connected to those services. And that is, by and large, the complete package, except for some secret stuff that was not announced at the time. Yeah, and overall, that seems pretty mild compared to what we could do for, you know, Russia interfering in our our electoral systems, this major part of our democracy, the part of our democracy to some extent. Why not go further? The election was over. Why did the administration stop there? Yeah, I mean, I think we tried to evaluate this. You look at pieces of these, of this package, the ones that got the most attention, the expulsions of the Russian officials and the seizure of those two compounds, were ideas that were initially conceived for offenses completely unrelated to the election. U.S. officials in Moscow at the U.S. Embassy had been subjected to increasing harassment. And so the State Department had been lobbying for quite a long time. We need to retaliate for how our people are being treated there. And so these ideas came from that problem. They weren't even related to the election. The sanctions are also puzzling in some ways. Because the U.S. actually has a lot of leverage when it comes to sanctions, especially when it works with its allies. If you go back and look at sanctions that the United States orchestrated and implemented with Europe to punish Russia for its activities in Ukraine, those took a major dent out of the Russian economy. Its GDP contracted by 4%. Its reserves started plummeting. The, The economic sanctions that were announced related to the election had no such impact and weren't even projected to course, the Obama administration officials defend what they did and believe that these were consequential and that they were felt by Moscow. But I think that there were problems. They would say that they came out of the election with completely different footing than they were expecting. They expected a handoff to a like-minded administration that would be able to build on what they had done in punishing Moscow, not one that would pull the plug on it or at least consider pulling the plug on it. They thought that this was the starting point for retaliation or responses, not the end point. They just didn't sort of build that into their model. One of the things that they did beyond sanctions and these expulsions and the compounds was something that I will admit is totally over my head, (laughs) but you wrote about it well in your story, which was this new covert program that involved developing cyber implants in the Russian networks. Can you explain what that program is and how that works? So this is really one of the more interesting things we turned up in our reporting on this. This was something, obviously, that was not announced when Obama laid out these measures on December 29th last year, punishing Russia. But so what he's done here is he has secretly, Obama secretly signed what is known as a finding. It is basically a memo authorizing his intelligence agencies to conduct a covert action, a covert action that is designed to have a specific impact overseas. Anytime those agencies go beyond merely collecting information into action that is going to alter the course of events, they need approval like that from the president, and he gave it to them here. What this program that he authorizes is supposed to do 
is kind of seed parts of Russia's infrastructure with devices, not not necessarily literally devices, but implants, electronic software, pieces of software or other equipment that would, the United States could detonate remotely if it ended up in a cyber kind of showdown with Russia, right? So it's planting cyber weapons in Russia's infrastructure that it could detonate if the day came that the United States felt it needed to do that. Is the Obama administration intending to use that as sort of a threat against Russia? Does Russia know that this is something we're capable of doing? No. There was a cyber operation that the Obama administration did on its final weeks in office that was designed to be detected by Russia, that was basically popping up inside their network. Hey, we're here. Don't don't think we can't reach you. But no, this was not something that Russia was supposed to detect. This was only supposed to establish a capability that a future president, that future administrations might need to be able to have access to. Okay, well, that's a perfect segue to the question of what Trump now has, you know, at his fingertips. How has Trump upheld or not upheld the sanctions, the reversal of the compounds? What has Trump done with the hand he's been dealt in terms of Russia? Weirdly, the hand he's been dealt has actually constrained what he can do with Russia. Whatever impulses he had to lift these sanctions, to return those compounds, has been hard for him to move forward on because of his political entanglements with Russia. So all of these stories about his associates' dealings with Russians, their contacts with Russian officials, the firing of his national security advisor over his misstatements about their background conversations with Russia, Jared Kushner's dealings with the Russian ambassador and so forth, all make it politically really difficult for Trump to do what he appeared to really want to do, because we now have evidence that he wanted to roll back those sanctions when he first got into office. We reported in the Post that the State Department has been very recently even considering giving back those two compounds that the United States seized. But that hasn't happened so far. And it's not clear that it will. I mean, there is now more pressure coming from Congress, including Republicans in Congress, uh, for greater sanctions and greater punitive measures towards Russia than, 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 than the reverse. Trump still has, appears to have no appetite for that, no interest in that, no interest in revisiting this subject at all. But their political problems preclude um, some of the moves that they might have made. Do you know why he would want to remove these sanctions, why he would want to give back these compounds? Do we know why? I mean, it's a real, it's a mystery. I haven't heard anybody ever offer an authoritative answer to that. Like, what accounts for his admiration for Putin? What makes it so difficult for Donald Trump to ever say anything unkind about Putin? He just can't bring himself to do it. Others in his administration do. Their policies in some ways are not completely friendly to Russia, but Trump himself has a hard time going there. And I don't understand it. It's inexplicable to, I think, a lot of people in his own party. And I don't think, I'm not sure we'll ever get a full explanation from Trump himself. Yeah. And for everyone listening, for more information on this, go read the story. It is incredible. It is captivating. You won't regret it. And in the meantime, you can follow Greg on Twitter at... Greg P. Miller. Or you can follow me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mikes.
If you guys like this, subscribe wherever you get your podcast, leave us a review, share it with your friends, share it with your family, share it with people that you don't even know that well. Just get it out there. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the contemplative Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks and logo art from Loren Boglio. If you like Can He Do That, you should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan's interviews reveal the people behind today's biggest news. Or try Presidential, where host Lillian Cunningham spent a year exploring the character and legacy of each of the American presidents. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.